What's up, everybody? Good morning. Man, beautiful weather, finally. You know, I'm a California native, so when it gets cold for longer than three days in a row consecutively, I'm like, I can't handle this winter stuff. Um, so soft out here, but it is so nice today, though. Praise God. Uh, I'm Tim. I'm one of the elders here, and I serve as the lead pastor. So uh, welcome if you're a guest. If you're new, the restrooms are just around that way, and then in the main sanctuary behind us, um, straight on through there. Uh, our mission as a church is to lead people in healthy relationships with Jesus and each other, and there's really no better way to build a relationship than to um, make fun of each other. That's where real friendships are formed, is in trash talking. And uh, last Saturday, um, I received a, a, fi- a phone call from my dear friends Amy and Va'a after uh, I coached at La Casa Canyon, and we got smoked by El Camino High School. And we got smoked. And, um, and so they called me just to tell me how much they love me and go, El Camino, what? Oh, they were hating. And then... And then Friday night, and so today, <clears throat> sorry Pirates of Oceanside High School, but the Mavericks got you Friday night, and uh, hey, where you at? All right, let's go. Yeah. It's our year this year. Last year was four overtimes, and then we lost. This year was a, a field goal as time expired for us to win 17-16, so um you guys got to get to those games. Those LCT Oceanside games are lit. Um, y'all, they just hit different. I know Gen Z. You know what I'm talking about. Anyways, uh, another way to build healthy relationships is to uh, serve in our kids' ministry. So um, where are you at, Amy? That's Miss Amy over there. She runs our kids' crew. And... Um, yeah, and we need some uh, volunteers for our elementary school kids. You don't have to be great with babies. You just got to be able to herd cats, and you don't even need to teach. You could just hang out and make sure none of them run off somewhere or whatever else. Um, so, yeah, we need you for real, though, because um, as uh, we go to try to open up that classroom, we need more volunteers. And um, any of you with little kids know, if, you're, if you even have friends that have littler kids in elementary school, this was a brutal year for parents trying to figure that out. And they need a break. Coming from experience, we have a six and a four-year-old. We need a break. Yo, help us get a break on Sundays. This is a way to love our community. That we know for fact. We have friends that are that uh, aren't part of our church yet. That don't go, don't attend church, but they want to come. But there ain't no way they're going to sit there and their kids running around in circles around them. So please volunteer. It, it will lead someone to have interaction with Jesus. Just know. It's significant ministry, so um, please uh, see Amy. I'm sure we'll announce it later. Uh, we need you. We don't just want you. We need you, and there's a difference. So if you'd like to follow along this morning, uh, I'm gonna have, all the verses are in the Bible app. We're going to be in Luke 19. There's Bibles in the chairs in front of you, so you can follow along as well if you want to do it that way. Um, I'm going to pray and uh, invite up Natalie Slavin. She's going to have our scripture reading for this morning, and uh, off we go. Um, Father, thanks for being good. Uh, thank you for the relationships we have here to uh, just to be able to razz on each other and gloat and uh, still be friends. And uh, it's such a joy to call this church my, my family and my best friends. And uh, I know maybe there's some here that don't, don't have that experience yet here. I pray that they would. But I know that all starts with understanding what a good father you are at first, um, that we're adopted, we're loved, 
and we have new brothers and sisters because of that. And so I pray that would be communicated today, that we would uh, hear you. For those of, you who, of us who have walked with you for a long time, we pray for, for fresh revelation from you, that we'd see who you are with greater clarity and see who we are with greater clarity. And for those that are here that don't know you yet, I just pray that you would open their eyes that they would understand and know and, and feel and experience that there is a God who's for them, that loves them, and uh, has made a way for that to be real. So uh, speak now, Jesus. Amen. All right, Natalie Slavin, come on up. Can we use this one, Manuel? There we go. There you go. Thank you. You can just scroll. Good morning. <laughs> Good to see everyone. Um, if you guys are comfortable enough, could I ask you to close your eyes <laughs> or zone out <laughs> um, just to be able to put yourself in the setting and um, get comfy in your seat. Uh, maybe drop your shoulders, release your jaw, and focus on your breath for a few seconds. Um, I'm going to start in verse 28. After telling this story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, Why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, The Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you um, for your compassionate and gentle and lonely heart that you show us through Jesus. Jesus, thank you for fighting for us and grieving and weeping for and with us. Um, Holy Spirit, uh, I ask that you would teach us this morning, convict us, um, comfort us, fill us with yourself, and mm -hmm. empower us to be agents of your peace and reconciliation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Natalie.
In uh, 2019, I got a chance to go to Russia, and some of you guys know um, my friend Todd. He's been up here a few times to speak, and I'm sure we'll have him back in a little while, and he leads a lot of international ministry stuff. And we went over with him, and uh, we got to go to Moscow, and we got a little bit of the tour. Even though we didn't spend much time in Moscow, we got to see the Red Square and the Kremlin building and all that stuff. And um, and we got to this one little area where there's uh, there's a statue, and uh, this guy's name is Marshal Zhukov, and he was a famous Soviet general. And uh, I didn't, I can't read, I figured this out later, but because I, I can't read Russian. And um, it, and Russian is just, it looks like a bunch, of, it looks like the Nintendo controller letters to me, just the graphics. Um, but we get there and we look at, and I, I bump Todd and I'm like, hey, Todd, check it out. It's a dude on a horse. And he goes, what? I'm like, dude's on horses, man. Every city's got one. He goes, oh yeah, you're right. And it's true. If you go around Europe, if you go around South America, if you go around Asia, you go around Africa, every city you go to, every major city, there's a dude on a horse. There is. And usually he's got a sword or some other cool thing or a shield. And there he is. And actually, I found out they're called equestrian statues, believe it or not. They're not called dudes on horses. I I assume they were, but they're not. And actually, a full-size one is actually very expensive for any... um, any country to produce, and they're difficult to make. And each of these cities uses these equestrian statues to display one of their heroes. And generally, it's a king, or it's an emperor, or it's a general, or it's some hero. And uh, in Jerusalem, they've got Saladin, who is the Sultan of Egypt, a Sunni Muslim leader. In Deutschland, they have in München, it's King Ludwig, ja, ja, stark. In, in Budapest, in Hungary, it's King Stephen I. In Chihuahua, Mexico, we've got Pancho Villa. Orale, pues. Y en Colombia, y Venezuela, y Ecuador. ¿Alguien sabe quién? Simón Bolívar. Simón Bolívar, el libertador. Everywhere's got him. Even in San Diego, if you go down to Balboa Park, they've got El Cid. He's Rodrigo Díaz de Vivar, the Castilian knight. Everywhere you go. There's a dude on a horse. (laughs) In Russia, it was no different. And they show the city's power and its might. And it's a reminder that they're going to conquer. And none of them are as impressive, however, and no offense to any other place, but none of them have shocked me like the one I saw in Rome. And you go to Rome and you go to the Piazza del Campidoglio in Roma, Italia, and you see a statue that was built In 175 AD, it's 14 feet tall, made out of bronze, and it's Caesar Marcus Aurelius. And he stands just noble and strong, victorious. And it is supposed to remind you that Rome conquers and crushes everyone. And if you forgot, look at our dude on a horse. Power, conquest. And then, and then... You get this other king that shows up named Jesus. And he's not on a horse. He's cruising in town on a donkey. And, and he's not victorious. He, he shows up and he's weeping. And, and he's actually showing up, not with power and conquest, but actually purposefully antithetical to that. The exact opposite of what the cultures of the world want. So what kind of king is this? 
And what can we learn from this man? What's he trying to tell us? This is the story of Palm Sunday today. We're looking at Luke 19, and we, we just ended a couple weeks ago. I finished Luke 12, and so we're jumping ahead because it's Palm Sunday. And if you don't know much about Palm Sunday and Luke 19, this takes place in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, we're, we're at the time of Passover. We're starting the Holy Week, and Passover is a whole nation of Israel reenacting the Exodus. So the, the nation of Israel coming out of the oppression of Egypt, and they come together to celebrate that God delivered them. And and the Jews are actually waiting for another figure, just like Moses, to bring them out of the oppression. Only this time, it's not out of oppression from Egypt. It's out of oppression from Rome. And they're longing for this king to come and remove them. And at this time, Jerusalem swelled. It's, uh, commentators believe it's up to six times as many people were in Jerusalem now as they were throughout the year. You've got pilgrims coming from all over to worship God. And Luke 19 opens with a couple stories before we get to the scene that Natalie just read. First, it starts the story about Zacchaeus. Some of you remember Zacchaeus, a wee little man, a wee little man was he, climbed up in a sycamore tree, and, and Jesus sees this tax collector, this guy's, he's a jerk, you know, but he wants to see Jesus, and Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house, which is shocking to the crowds, and in verse 7 of Luke 19, it says, the people were greatly displeased, and they said, he's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, and they grumbled. I mean, they're ticked off. Jesus comes all the way to Jericho and he goes to his house. What's he doing with Zacchaeus? That's the guy that's been oppressing us. But Zacchaeus has this interaction with Jesus. And Zacchaeus, after experiencing the grace of God on someone who doesn't deserve it, says, I'm going to repay anybody I've stolen from four times what I've taken. And I'm going to give half of my belongings to the poor. I mean, radical repentance and this encounter with Jesus. And Jesus responds in verse 9 saying, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. So that's the first story in Luke 19. And the second story in Luke 19 is Jesus tells this parable about 10 servants and he gives them his possessions. It's a king that's going away to a distant country. and He's going to come back and he's going to give his servants his stuff to take charge of. And the king comes back finally after a long trip and he, he invites in these three servants and they give account for what they've done with his possessions. And as the story goes, a couple of them were faithful and they invested it, but one of them was a wicked servant. And he didn't do anything with it. He actually just buried it in the ground. And, and instead of kind of owning his mistake, he actually accuses the king of being a shady king. It's really a, it's really a strange story. But Luke is writing these things to paint a picture for us that the kingdom of God is being received very differently by people. It's being received differently by the so-called outsiders. And in the second story of Luke 19, the insider, one of these, one of these servants is actually supposed to show us what the religious elite was doing with Jesus. That instead of being faithful, they had actually begun to accuse God and be resentful of God's grace. And actually, they're proving themselves as the so-called insiders or actually the outsiders. While the outsiders, like guys like Zacchaeus, are the ones that are, because of God's grace, becoming insiders. And that's what we're seeing in Luke 19 prior to getting to the scene of Jesus entering Jerusalem. There is an unwillingness by some to not recognize who Jesus is. That he actually is a king. That actually God has come to visit his people. And so that's where we enter in. And I think maybe the key word here is that Jesus isn't fitting their preferred agenda 
They, just like the cultures of the world, wanted a dude on a horse to come victorious, but that's not how he came. So here we go, verse 28. This is Luke 19. Follow along with me in your, in your Bibles. Luke 19, verse 28 says, Jesus went onward towards Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. And as he came to the towns of, I'm saying Bethpage. I don't, I don't know what Natalie says, Bethphage or something. That was the French translation. I'm going Bethpage because that's easy for me. Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And he sent two ahead of him. And he said, go into that village over there and you're going to enter it. And you're going to see a young donkey tied there. No one's ever ridden it. Untie it, bring it here. And everyone, if anyone asks you why you're untying that colt, say the Lord needs it. Okay, so visually, if you're thinking about Jerusalem, Bethpage and Bethany sit on the rolling hills on the east side of Jerusalem. And you can see the city from these hillside little villages. It's about a mile and a half. So it would take you about 30 minutes to walk from where they're about to go into Jerusalem proper. And now imagine this scene for a second. You're walking along with Jesus. Assuming it's 12, and then you can tell from the later scene, there's others with him following him. And Jesus stops, and he turns to you, and he says, hey, we're about to go in that village. Go in that village, and there's a donkey, and it's tied up. It's actually not. It's a young donkey, though. Look for it, and then just grab it and take it here. Oh, by the way, if anyone just stops you, tell them the Lord needs it. I mean, do what? That's a weird request. I mean, it's, right? But then my three favorite words show up. Verse 32, so they went. I mean, that's a weird request. Hey, go into that town, just grab, and if anyone says it, just say the Lord needs you. That's like, go to, go, go to Hohen, Hohen Honda in Carlsbad and just grab one off the lot, and if they try to stop you, the sales guy say, hey, don't, the Lord needs it, I'll be, whatever, off we go. Man, it could happen. But verse 32, so they went. I love that. Jesus intentionally, and he still does, sends his disciples with very little to go off of. Just trust. So they went. Does that mark your life? I've been wrestling with that this week. Does that mark your life just hearing God say, hey, do this, and responding in action? That's our first observation for this morning. Observation number one is we expect to understand. Jesus expects us to trust. There's a difference. We expect to understand. Jesus expects us to trust. Don't stall. Don't ask for clarity, even though that's not always bad. Just trust. And that's hard for Western post-enlightenment moderners. Uh, We grew up with, I think, therefore I am, Rene Descartes. We, We prize intellectual understanding above all things. I would even say our culture has an idolatry of understanding. What do I mean by that? I mean, regarding God, we say things like, if God will explain why he's done that, then I'll obey. But until, I, until he does, I'm out. Or for a more antagonist approach, some say, well, God, if you're so good, then why has blank happened? Why is this happening in my life? God, if you're so good, prove it. And what we're doing is we're sort of taking God, as if we really could actually do this, and putting him in the middle of our courtroom and going, all right, you're on the throne. Or, uh, sorry, you're, you're on, the, uh, on, the, on the seat. Testify. Why have you done this? Let's see what your answer is. You see the problem with that? If God is God? Further, we don't just do it with God. We do it with his word because we take the Bible and say, oh, you know what? I don't understand that. Or, I don't like the way, I don't like what that says about that. You know, if you'll give me a reason to believe that, I will. But nah, I don't like that part. 
maybe I'm just going to avoid it. I'm just going to cut that part out. Or some of you heard of the Thomas Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson, one of our founders, supposedly a Christian, who definitely was not. He has a Bible. You can see it in the Library of Congress where he actually took scissors and cut out all the verses in the Bible that he thought didn't apply or should be taken out. It's called the Thomas Jefferson Bible. Look it up. It's ridiculous. But you know what? Actually, I like his honesty because a lot of us, if we're honest, a lot of people would do the exact same thing if they could. Many do. And if, you're, if we're not careful, any of us falls into that. I like what the Bible says about this. And I don't like what it says about that. And therefore, here I go. Now, Tim Keller had something to say about this in his book, The Reason for God. And he says this, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and a genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle as in a real friendship or marriage, will you know that you've gotten a hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. So an authoritative Bible and God is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It is the precondition for it. Jesus says, the only thing you really need is to trust me. If you want a real God and a real relationship, I need to be able to offend you. I need to be able to frustrate you. I need to be able to wrestle with you. I need to be able to talk with you about these things. It's not God is good if. It's God is good, therefore. I think Jesus would say to us this morning again, I'm not asking you to understand. I'm asking you to trust. I'm not asking you to understand. I'm asking you to act. I'm asking you to obey. As Martin Luther King Jr. once said, faith is taking the first step even when you can't see the whole staircase. So they went. And what happened? Verse 32, they found the colt, just as Jesus had said. Verse 33, and sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, where the heck are you going with my colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their garments over him over it for him to ride on. Context. Jesus doesn't need a donkey to ride into the city. I mean, they've already, from Galilee down to Jerusalem, have already walked over 100 miles. They've made plenty of stops. He's not tired. He doesn't need a a final ride downhill, by the way, through the Kidron Valley to get into the city. No, he is deliberately reenacting something. Now, we don't get this because we're not Jewish. We didn't study, grow up hearing about the Messiah our whole lives and our hope, but they did. Jesus is riding this donkey specifically to fulfill scripture of Zechariah 9.9. In that prophecy, Zechariah writes this, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble. Riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And so Jesus starts his descent through the Kidron Valley, purposefully, deliberately on this colt to enter into the Golden Gate through into Jerusalem. In verse 36, we see this. That as he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. And when he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along. 
praising God for the wonderful miracles that they had seen. And they said this, blessing on the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. His disciples are doing exactly what Zechariah prophesied would happen. They're rejoicing. They're, they're, they're shouting, oh my gosh, salvation's come. Triumph. And they recognize him as a king and recognize him as this is the prophetic arrival. This is what we've been waiting for. This is the moment we've, we've prayed for. This is the moment we've cried out to God for, that someone would deliver us. And Matthew and Mark give us a little bit more detail in their gospel accounts that this is where people start cutting off tree branches or palm branches, start laying them on the road. In other words, they're rolling out the red carpet. And this is a, it's a throw their clothes down and, and palm branches. This is the red carpet is out. And what they do is what they say here is actually quoting Psalm 118. They quote a messianic psalm from King David saying this in verse 25, please, Lord, save us. That's where we get the word Hosanna. Please, Lord, give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. These are incredible words. They may not hit you as they, as they meant for them, but these are incredible words of praise for Jesus. And we see that because of how upset the Pharisees get. And I'll get to that in a second. But this is the same language, if you remember, from Luke chapter 2, when the angels appeared to the shepherds in the field. These are the same words, almost mirroring word for word, what the angels told the shepherds what they would find when they saw the baby Jesus. And yet, amongst all the celebration, there's division. The backdrop here is division. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all make it clear that it was not the people of the city that were praising him. It was the people on the road. It was the pilgrims who were outside of the city and Jesus' disciples. They were praising him, and the city was going to react much differently, reflecting the religious elites. Their reaction was dramatically different. And actually, this division is exactly what Simeon prophesied over Jesus when he held the baby Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, verse 34, Simeon holds up, if you remember, I talked about this a couple weeks ago again. They, he holds up Jesus and he says to Mary and Joseph, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. And he has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. And this is happening. And it's happening right here. Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, teacher, shut your disciples up. That's what he's saying. Rebuke your disciples for saying things like this. How dare they? That's her heresy. And Jesus responds in verse 40, if they keep quiet, the stones along the road are going to burst into cheers. The very some other translations say the very rocks are going to cry out. In other words, if you st try to stop human mouths from praising me, don't worry, the entire galaxy is and will. See, the Pharisees know what the people are saying here. They realize the radical praise that the, the, the disciples and the followers of Jesus and the pilgrims are saying about him. And they're saying, shut that down. You are not that guy. Jesus says, even if you, and I think this is good for us, even if our human mouths stop singing the praises of God, creation still will. Isn't that amazing? All of us could choose to shut our mouths and never praise God again. But though when the oceans roar, he hears its praise. 
It's actually, he's echoing what Psalm 19 said when King David wrote, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims the work of his hands. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. And Jesus is poignantly saying, all creation worships me, even if human mouths will not. And Luke, right here, brings us to this very specific question, which is, who, therefore, in the midst of this division, who represents the true Israel? Is it those in the city, just based on where they live? Is it based on their bloodline? Or is it the ones praising Jesus as king? Who's the true Israel? Because even in this moment of beautiful celebration, there is a clear division happening. Some praise, some are trying to shut up the praise. And the Pharisees are furious. He's not our king. He's the king of the outsider. They wanted a king. They desperately wanted a king. But they wanted their Messiah, not one like he came. Not one on a donkey. Not one hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Not one welcoming the outsiders they're so tired of. Not one speaking with the Roman officers. Not one on a donkey. I mean, isn't Jesus, I mean, imagine you're them. Isn't Jesus going to deliver us? Isn't he going to give us this exodus out from under the new Egypt and Rome? Isn't he going to judge Rome? I mean, finally, somebody's going to get these Roman Gentile scum. Finally, we're going to set up an all Jewish government. We're going to get prayer back in schools. We're going to get Torah and mission of values back at the center of our country on the ticket. And we're going to get this moral perversion from these Gentiles out of our land. We want a king that's going to do that. We want him on a horse. We want him to crush these scumbags. Teachings about love and humility and serving enemies and all that. And that's not going to get us anywhere. Let's get the swords. Let's stop him out. Why is he on that little donkey? I mean, aren't kings supposed to come in a limo with the a, with a whole motorcade? Why is he in that Civic? No, no way. Prius is way too Civic. Jesus loves the earth. He would drive a hybrid. No, Jesus is on a donkey because he represents a different kind of kingdom. One that's supposed to aggravate us as humans. Why are you doing it like that, Jesus? Why? Because he's the true and better Moses who's actually come to bring a greater freedom and a greater exodus from a greater oppressor, the human heart, human sin. See, we want circumstantial change, but Jesus has come to bring heart change. They wanted Rome crushed. And Jesus says, I actually want to change you so that you can love Romans, even while they oppress you. That's true freedom. That's our second observation for this morning. Some want a king to rule and crush oppressors, but Jesus comes as a king to serve, to serve his enemies. Some of us want a king to crush our enemies, but Jesus comes as a king that serves his enemies. We want a conquering hero, yet he comes as a suffering servant. Verse 41, and as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace, but now it's too late. 
and peace is hidden from your eyes. And before long, your enemies are going to build ramparts against your walls and circle you, close in on you from every side and crush you to the ground with your children. Your enemies are not going to leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you or you did not recognize your time of visitation. I mean, think about this for a second. God cried. That's not the first time he's done it. He weeps over Jerusalem. He knows, as Ray pointed out, that some, not all, but some of these same voices, and even if it was different voices, that a crowd now cheering him, there's going to be a crowd in less than a week that's going to be cheering, crucify him. And he's weeping. He knows his death's coming. And get this, he's not weeping for himself. He's weeping for those that are going to murder him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Those, that's going to be his words from the cross as he's hanging, watching him get tortured. He's not vengeful. It's shocking to me. He's not vengeful. I would be. When I read this, I would be. You arrogant. How much more do I have to do? And you see frustration at times, yet in the moment, his heart shows up. He's not vengeful. He's heartbroken. The way of peace, God himself walking right amongst them and they failed, they chose not to recognize him. Recognition. And you know what's crazy is this is what Jesus says to them isn't just some random prophecy. He actually tells them exactly what's going to happen. You rejected the way of peace and instead you're going to pick up your arms and charge Rome. You're going to try to get on a horse and do what the kingdoms of the world do and you're going to get crushed. And this is the second of three times that Jesus prophesies very specifically, if you choose this way, Rome is going to crush you. And that's exactly what they did. Because the Jews revolted. They refused to take the way of peace. And they choose the way of self in the world. And in 66 AD, the Jewish-Roman war started. And there was a revolt against Rome. And by 70 AD, the Roman legions arrived under Titus. And the Romans built embankments, exactly what Jesus said, and they placed battering rams, and the siege began. And after five months, the walls were, were completely torn down. The temple was crushed, burned. Every stone was turned over. The city was left completely desolate, except for Herod's three great towers in the northwest city to say, everything is crushed except our stuff. One million Jews were killed. 95,000 were taken captive as prisoners. The way of peace had come, but they had rejected him. And thus they rejected peace. Yet even in this, I'm empathetic to Israel's cry. I mean, really, they were tired. The Romans had oppressed them brutally. Constantly. They wanted liberation from the moral, political, and ethnic oppression that they were experiencing. They wanted peace. They wanted freedom from these corrupt civil authorities but they wanted it on their terms. They wanted it on their terms, and they thought it was a political movement. Proverbs 14, 12 said, there is a way that seems right to a man, in the end, it leads to death. And they chose what seemed right to them in their ways, and it led to exactly what happened, death. Yet Jesus comes, and he says, but, but do you want to see how my kingdom spreads? You want to join my kingdom because I've come to give you a new heart. A heart that loves even Romans, even your oppressors, even your enemies. I could do that inside you. 
even when you're being spit on, even when you're trying to, when they're carrying their armor. And they said today, often like we say today, you know what, Jesus? No, thanks. New philosophy. I don't want to do that. I don't want to get taken advantage of. I don't want to get punked around. I... We often come to Jesus and say things like, Lord, fix my wife. Fix my husband. Fix my parents. Fix my kids. Fix my government. Fix my boss. Help them not be so. And he comes back to us. He says, no, I want to make you like me. Because they may never change, but I can change you even in the midst of it. Because I came to love my enemies, not crush them. I came to die for those that rejected me, even you. And I want you to be like that no matter what happens in society, no matter what happens in your family, no matter what happens at work. And that is a kingdom that cannot be stopped. That is a kingdom that every government, not every, many governments throughout world history have tried to crush, and yet it still lives. Why? Because it's a different type of kingdom with a different type of king. That's our third observation for this morning. Is that we often want peaceful circumstances, but Jesus comes to give peace in our hearts, regardless of circumstance. And actually, after Easter, we're going to be diving into a series specifically about, yeah, but how do I experience that? I want to help you. How do we, get, how do we actually experience this kingdom in our hearts on a regular basis? And I think there is some hows. It doesn't need to be a mystery. There are actually things Jesus tells us about how to build intimacy so his kingdom can invade in and through us to our world. But picking up where we left off here, I ask myself before I teach, why is this good news for me personally? Because yeah, it's not good news for me when I'm teaching. It's probably not going to be good news to you. But I'll tell you this. What this means for me right now is that probably the thing I'm most irritated by the thing I most want to change in my life is possibly the thing God is specifically using to shape me, to love me and change me. The thing that I might be convinced can't be God's will might actually be the thing that is his will so that I'd learn to live and thrive and connect with him in the midst of it. Maybe my frustrations with some of the stuff Bo's learning in school or, or whatever, or some of the stuff that's about to come through the California public school system that I'm frustrated, anxious about. Maybe God's saying, you know what, Tim? Actually, I want to use that because I want you to disciple your kids, not pawn it off on the school system. And actually, I want, you as a pastor, I want you as a pastor to actually help come alongside parents and equip us that we would be the primary disciple makers of our kids and not outsource it to the church or whatever government entity there is. Maybe that frustration actually going to lead us to more faithfulness and more kingdom expansion, even in the midst of our frustration. It's daily good news that I don't have to understand. I can trust. I can say yes. Because I know the promise of Romans 8 is true, that all things are working together for the good of me, who's been called according to God's purposes. For my good and his glory, he's orchestrating life. And I, like you, am prone to miss Jesus, especially when I'm frustrated, especially when I'm expecting life to go my way and I, these interruptions happen. And I buy into that lie. This is an interruption to God's program schedule. Man, I wonder what God's doing up there. 
Man, he must be so upset with all these interruptions that are just messing his plans up for everything. I mean, if only he were sovereign. <laughs> right? But that's how we think when stuff's not going our way. Oh, gosh, it's all falling apart. I think what he would say to us this morning, brothers and sisters, is that, no, I can give you peace even if Caesar's on the throne. Even if you're oppressed, there's hope today because I'm the true king. You don't need circumstantial peace. You need the prince of peace with you always. You don't need to understand. Just trust. Guys, I think Jesus said this. I didn't come to conquer. I came to serve. My peace and kingdom is not of this world. It brings life to hearts in this world. The reality of the statues of dudes on horses is this. They're all dead and they're not coming back. And the statues are reminders of things that were once were, but won't be again. Their voice is gone. Their power is gone. What's interesting is Jesus' followers didn't go build donkey cat, uh, statues of him, nor should they. Why? Because he's still alive. We don't need to memorialize him. He's still reigning in his, on his throne now. He's still speaking. His kingdom's still growing. We don't need to plant a statue of Jesus on Capitol Hill because we have a king residing in our hearts in every state of our nation to bring revival. Again, it's just something that no government system can ever stomp out. It's a kingdom that will spread. Actually, in fact, typically better the more persecution that comes. Why? Because he's king. We have daily reminders. We can, through the word, through our times together, through just opening our hearts and minds to listen to him, that he is still at work. The king is on the throne. The battle is won. The battle is being won, and the battle will be won. The thing is, Jesus is actually coming back. And when he does come back, that time he will be on a horse. And we'll get to look at that next Sunday. The battle will be won because Satan, sin, and death has all been conquered. The exodus has come. We've been set free. This is Holy Week. Today starts the first day of Holy Week as we get to look forward to the greatest moment in the history of planet Earth. It gives us hope to all of us. The reminder that our hope is based in a historical fact tomb's empty. Jesus rose. Let's pray. Father, we often don't recognize you at work. Jesus, we, we don't recognize you even in the midst of our life sometimes. And we know some of that is that we are trying to understand before we trust. We don't, we don't want that. We want to be those that just sense what's good and right and pure and sense your voice and we obey. Because it's you, why else wouldn't we? But we know we're so prone to feel like some, even those times would be interruptions to our lives. And, and Jesus, today we ask that you'd open our eyes to see you daily. See you today. We don't want to live, live in the, the legacy of rejecting the way of peace when, it's, when he's whispering to us. No, we, we, want, we want to follow the way of peace, Lord. 
we don't want to cry out always for circumstantial change. We, we want you to change us so that we would be okay even when everything else isn't okay. Not just okay, but that we would walk with confidence that we have the resurrected king on the throne of our hearts, empowering us to do more than we ever thought or imagined. Father, help us have that level of expectation in our life, in our family, in our work, in our world. We put our hope in you, Jesus, because you're alive. We don't need a statue to remind us. We just need your voice. So speak, Jesus. Have your way in our lives. Amen.